Well, I'm uh, grateful to Alan for preaching here uh, last week. I had a chance to uh, watch it, and he did an awesome job. So thanks a, a ton, Alan. I was in Esparto. Uh, I don't know if you know, but we have like a, a church out in Esparto uh, that's a, a part of the Calvary family. So I got to go out there and to be with them and to preach. And uh, they just moved into a new facility. They were in this like little house next to the elementary school out there. And, and now we have uh, a rented space at the Presbyterian church out there. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's like this old brick building with stained glass windows. It is gorgeous. It was just, uh, it was cool. It was really a fun experience, a fun place uh, to get to preach, and so it was a, a blessing uh, to be out there. But I'm glad to be back, glad to be here. Uh, if you want to open up your Bibles to the book of Acts, we're going to get back into our uh, study. Uh, we're kind of turning the corner uh, towards the last part of this book. Uh, we're going to look at, at a big chunk of, of Acts chapter 9 this morning. Uh, I think one of the most harmful, destructive dangerous things that the church faces has ever had to deal with is uh, is people who who think that they are serving God who do awful horrible ungodly things i mean there have been people who have done truly atrocious things in the name of God all throughout history People, people who usually they think they're helping God in, in some way, uh, but really they're, they are not. They're not helping Him at all. Uh, in recent years, uh, there's been this thing called the Westboro Baptist Church. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's not really even a church. It's just this, this family of, of twisted, messed up people. Uh, who, who do things like, like try and gain attention for themselves by picketing military funerals and holding up signs, declaring the different types of people that, that God hates. And I think that they're at least part of the reason why Baptist churches want to take the word Baptist out of their name because they give us a bad name. That's, that's not, that's not Baptist. That's not what we are. They don't, they don't share any good news. All they do is spew hate. And they are so far away from the God of the Bible. But that's, that's just one group and a long line of groups and people that Satan has confused and twisted into thinking that they are serving God in some way when really they're serving the enemy. And sometimes it's, it's a, it's a bad theology or maybe it's a weak view of God or, or a, a disconnect from the truth of the Word of God or just a, a misplaced faith. There's a lots of different things that, that our enemy will use to convince us that, that this idol that we're worshiping is the real God and, and should be served. In Acts, the greatest enemy of the early church is this man who is devout. Like he is a devout follower of God. A sincere believer. Uh, he's been trained by one of the best rabbis that's ever lived. He's been steeped in the traditions of Judaism. He has followed all of the rules and the laws to the letter. But this, this guy, Saul, 
saw Christianity as being absolutely blasphemous, just wrong. To him, it looked like Christianity was polytheism. How could there be God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit? That's too many gods. He didn't understand that. And to him, it was just a, it was a lie. Uh, Jesus didn't really rise from the dead. That was just a scam that his followers pulled off. It wasn't true. And what he saw is this Christianity is, is attacking the beliefs and the customs and the traditions of Judaism. And, and so he saw it as his responsibility to defend those things that he loved. To defend God and God's ways and God's honor. And so to some extent, I could understand how Saul could get to this place of being so adamant about defending the faith. I mean, I wanted, I want to make sure that, that the truth of the Bible is protected and defended myself. That's something I want to do. But, but I think anytime the practice of your faith leads to things like murderous threats and hatred, you might be doing it wrong. It might be the wrong faith. It's, it's a clue that you're not serving the real God. Now listen, I don't, I don't think any of us are, are guilty of this. But still, let, let me issue this warning. Because I think, I think sometimes for, for us, we can, we can read a lot of things that we see on the internet and we can listen to a lot of things that are sometimes very, very critical, very harsh. And that can build in us this like critical, bitter, kind of angry uh, heart and nature. And if, if the things that you're listening to and reading are making you more unloving and ungracious and angry and bitter and critical, then you, you might be listening to the wrong things or listening in the wrong way. Most of the books of the New Testament start with a prayer for, a greeting, wishing grace and peace on those who are reading. That's what the Bible expects from grace and peace in ever-increasing amounts for us. Fruit of the Spirit are things like love and joy, peace and patience and kindness and goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. If the practice of your faith is producing the opposite of those things, then you're doing it wrong. Okay? Paul is definitely a, a guy, well, Saul, he isn't Paul yet, right? Definitely a guy who's misguided. He's misguided because he didn't believe that Jesus was God, and he didn't believe that Jesus rose from the dead. He's confused about those two things. But in an instant, with one meeting, those two areas of error are clarified for him, right? Look at Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them to Jerusalem. 
As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus. And suddenly, a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. Leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. He was there three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, he said, here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, get up, go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. He has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Ananias answered, "Uh, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. The Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias departed and entered the house and after laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales and he regained his sight and got up and was baptized and took food and was strengthened. For several days, he was with the disciples who were at Damascus. And immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. There are, there are certain passages of Scripture that I find particularly moving. And this is one of them. In the depth of the love of God, And the beauty of salvation is just so evident here. You can't can't read this without realizing that there is no one, not one single person on this earth that is beyond hope. No one is unsavable. No one is so bad and, and so lost and so wrong that they're beyond God's grasp. There's, there's people out there, there might even be people in here who feel like they don't deserve God's grace. That the things that they've done are really bad. and There's no way that God could ever forgive me or love me or save me. But listen, my guess is that there's nobody in here that's done things worse than what Saul has done. There is no one that is hopeless. I, I had a, a friend from uh, high school 
Um, we used to skip English class together. After high school, we just kind of went in different directions, and and he uh, started hanging out with uh, people who were more involved in in drugs, uh, and, and it started like it normally does, relatively small, but got bigger and bigger, and and took more and more control of him to the point that he found himself in this in this cycle of of drug abuse and then there'd be a little bit of sobriety and clarity and and an attempt to get clean only to slip back into more drug abuse and that just kept going on over and over again Unfortunately, this guy had an older brother who found him at a low spot at one point and grabbed him and said, listen, if you don't get clean, I'm going to beat the crud out of you. You know, like a good older brother would. His parents were living in Arizona at the time, so he went there, slept for like a month, slowly came back to sobriety and came back to church, back to his faith, back to Jesus. Back to health. Eventually, he he moved back here uh, to Woodland and started attending church and started worshiping Jesus here. One day at church, I asked for some help. I needed some help with leading worship at the church out in Esparto. And, And Tom Waltman came up to me and said, I feel like God wants me to serve him. And I'm so glad, I'm so glad that nobody is hopeless. Because I don't know what we would do without Tom leading us in worship every single week. No one, no one is beyond help. And there is not one single one of us who doesn't reject Jesus. We all do. All of us like sheep have gone astray. There is no one who is righteous. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're all dead in our sins and by nature enemies of God. We might not all be as actively opposed to Christianity as Saul was here. We we might not all have abuse in our lives. But we all reject God as our, as our Lord and as our Savior and instead put ourselves on that throne. No one earns God's favor. In fact, that, that mentality that we can in some way earn God's favor is the exact error that led Saul to do what Saul was doing. It's this legalism that breeds arrogance. And, and, and an arrogant, self-righteous religion, that is Satan's thing. It's, it's not something that comes from the Holy Spirit of God. We don't all reject Jesus in the same way. There are some who just reject Him outright, reject the idea that Jesus is God, that Jesus rose from the dead. They don't believe uh, any of it. They, they don't have anything to do with religion at all. Some, some believe that Jesus was a real person, but reject the idea that he was God, like fully God. They might even talk about Jesus, but it's some like lesser man-made version of Jesus. That's essentially the Mormon and Jehovah's Witness error. They reject that Jesus is fully God. 
Some, some believe that Jesus was, was real, maybe even believe that he rose from the dead, but don't have any interest in following or serving or obeying him as their God. Who do you say Jesus is? Who do you believe Jesus is? Because the answer to that question is vitally important. At some point, we have to stop rejecting. We have to stop pushing Him away. Let Him speak to us. The conversion of Saul here shows us, it teaches us that there is a God who actively seeks us out, right? He comes to us. I mean, we, we kind of just celebrated an entire holiday that's all about the fact that there's a God who comes down and seeks us out. And, and in the Bible, there's all these, these parables of lost things that are found, right? There's the parable of the lost coin and the lost sheep and the lost son. Those are all stories about how God hunts us down and fights till we're found, leaves the 99. I think God had been, had been seeking Paul for a while. I mean, if we fast forward to the end of the book, like the end of Acts, decades later, by this point, he has had all these missionary journeys and traveled all over the place and shared the gospel and planted churches and been hunted by Jewish leaders, been arrested, threatened with the death penalty. And after years in prison, finally gets this opportunity to speak before King Agrippa. Just like Jesus said, I'm, he's going to have this opportunity to speak before Gentiles and kings. So Paul tells King Agrippa about his conversion and adds this detail that's a little different uh, from uh, Acts chapter 9. In Acts 26.14, And when he had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in Hebrew, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Jesus tells Saul, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. First of all, this, this sounds totally like something Jesus would say, right? Like a, some sort of agricultural analogy was right up his alley. A goad is just a, a sharp stick that was used to prod an ox into action. It was just like a little gentle poke in the hindquarters. And if the ox decided to kick against that goad, there was a greater likelihood that they would get stabbed in the hindquarters by that sharp stick. It would do more harm than good. The goal of the goad was movement. And, and it was foolish to kick against the goad. That's, that's what Jesus tells Saul here. That's, I, listen, I've been prodding you for a while now. Isn't that interesting to think about? That Jesus is telling Saul, I have been prodding you and you keep kicking against it and it's not working for you. How, how has God been, been seeking, prodding, nudging Saul? I'm surely through giving him the Bible. Like Saul had the Bible, he had studied it, he had read it. He should have known 
better. But not only that, Saul has been able to see these Christians who boldly confess their faith in Jesus Christ as the Messiah, Savior, with their dying breath. That had to have caused him to at least pause for a second and take notice. God seeks after us because as as blind, sinful, spiritually dead people, we can't seek after Him. We need God to grant us this gift of, of faith and grace and sight. And God does that in a dramatic way with Saul, right? Knocks him off his donkey. But not everyone gets saved in as dramatic a fashion. There's, there's this uh, awesome theologian and pastor in New York named Timothy Keller. He wrote a book about uh, the parable of the lost son. And he, he points out that really both sons in the parable, the younger one and the older one, are lost. One's lost in wild living. The other son is lost in self-righteousness. Uh, Here's the book right here. The title of it is The Prodigal God. Here's what Keller has to say. He says, We will never find God unless He first seeks us. But we should remember that He can do so in very different ways. Sometimes God jumps on us dramatically as He does with the younger son. We have a sharp sense of His love. Sometimes He quietly and patiently argues with us even though we continue to turn away as in the case of the older son. How can you tell if He's working on you now? If you begin to sense your lostness and find yourself wanting to escape it, you should realize that that desire is not something you could have generated on your own. Such a process requires help. And if it's happening, it's a good indication that He is even now at your side. I, I think that maybe uh, many of us understand what He's saying here. There was a time in our lives when we sensed our lostness and we longed to be found. If that is a feeling that is growing in you, then it's a good indication that God is even right now at your side, poking you in the butt with a sharp stick. God seeks us and He saves us for a purpose. Uh, Definitely the case with Saul. And it's true for every single one of us. Saul here is is blinded by the light. Uh, He's led into the city of Damascus. God speaks to a guy named Ananias, a a different Ananias than the other one. Uh, Tells him, I have this job for you. I want you to go to a, a straight street. And I want you to find the house of a guy named Judas, a a different Judas. Uh, And then in that house, you're going to find a man named Saul of Tarsus. Go and pray for him. 
And Ananias says, yeah, God, I know who Saul is. <laughs> uh, he's dangerous. He's the enemy. He, he's bad. And I love how God responds. The Lord says to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and sons of Israel, for I'll show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. He's not bad. He's not dangerous. He's mine. He's my child. He's my chosen instrument who's going to proclaim my name to Gentiles and to kings and to everybody. He's been called. I think that, that's what God says of us, right? That's who we are. It doesn't matter who we were. It's not who we are anymore. We're His. Chosen, called for a purpose. In Ephesians 2.10, says, we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. God has sought you and saved you for a purpose. And I think that's one of the greatest gifts that we're given as children of God. We not only receive uh, forgiveness of our sin and eternal life and the Holy Spirit and hope, we receive this gift of meaning and purpose. We, we gain a purpose in this life that goes beyond this life and this earth. And instead of just puttering around, killing time, doing, doing meaningless things and chasing after the wind, we get to be a part of something that has eternal value. Something that that matters forever. We get, to, we get to be the messengers who share Christ with others. We get to serve and build up the body of Christ. We get to be a part of this great rescue mission. We get to be the sharp stick in the hands of God, helping to prod people towards movement. Which is maybe why God said, I'll show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Because you're probably going to get kicked a lot while you're goading people. But that's rough. That's not fun. But how much better is it to suffer for something that matters than it is to just remain comfortably worthless? I don't know about you, I'd rather suffer for something that matters than live a life that's just comfortable and worthless. Saul, Saul has two names, right? Saul and, and Paul. Saul was his Hebrew name. He's very proud of his Hebrew name. He's very proud of his Jewishness. Uh, his, his other name, his Roman name, is Paul. And just a few chapters over, Saul, saw, Saul stops using that, that Hebrew name that he, that he was so proud of. And uh, as an ambassador who's been sent by God on a mission from God to Gentiles, he starts using his Roman name, Paul. Because I think he takes his, his mission and his calling from God very, very seriously. 
He gives up everything, everything he has, every, every part of his old life, everything that he held dear, everything that he valued so much, he's willing to give it up, even his name, in order to follow Jesus. Why? Why would anyone do that? I think because what Paul discovered on the road to Damascus is that he was wrong. And he saw for himself that Jesus was alive and that Jesus was God. God has saved you for a purpose and ultimately that purpose is not about you. It's about Him. And He gets all the glory. God gets all the glory through the conversion of Saul. This particular conversion highlights the love and grace and power and sovereignty of God. But in all of our lives, in all of our stories, God gets the glory for what He's done for us. Ephesians 1.3 Blessed be God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before Him in love. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will to the praise of the glory of His grace. God gets the glory. There's a, a relatively new worship song that we've been singing for, I don't know, maybe, maybe a year. Uh, it's called Reckless Love. Uh, and even though the lyrics come pretty much right from Luke chapter 15, uh, it's a song that's been somewhat controversial. And the problem is with the word reckless, right? Because to us, reckless means irresponsible and, and dangerously thoughtless. And, and that's not what God's like. God's not irresponsible. But another Another synonym to that word reckless is uh, the word prodigal, like the story of, of the prodigal son. In, in another quote from, from this book, The Prodigal God, uh, Keller explains why he titled the book The Prodigal God. He says the word prodigal does not mean wayward, but according to the Merriam-Webster's dictionary, Recklessly spendthrift. It means to spend until you have nothing left. This term is therefore uh, appropriate for describing the father in the story as it is the younger son. The father's welcome to the repentant son was literally reckless because he refused to reckon or account his sin against him or demand repayment. Thank God... (laughs) for His reckless love to us. 2 Corinthians 5.18 says, Now all these things are from God who reconciles us to Himself through Christ, gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the Word to Himself, not counting or reckoning their trespasses against them. He has committed to us the Word of reconciliation. Oh, praise God for not giving up on us, for seeking us and for saving us, for calling us and for gifting us, and for using us all for His glory. God, we thank You so much for Your Word. 
Thank You for how You have sought us and saved us. How You reconcile us through Your Son, Jesus Christ, and give us this ministry of reconciliation where we're to go out and be instruments in Your hands to tell others about who You are and what You've done. God, again, we thank You so much that even when we were dead and lost and so far away, You found us. You opened our eyes and You saved us and You brought us near to You. Thank You for that love that You have for us that will reckon our sin against us. You've given us everything that we need. Lord, thank You for Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. In His name we pray. Amen.